This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by the Flippin' Fantastic. Amazon customer says, I have bought numerous thing over the year and never care to comment, but this one was the worst. The concept is interesting, but this product have too many flaws. Came in all twisted, doesn't stick to any pan, so the egg beater went all over the place underneath this thing. Straight to the garbage. Flippin' fantastic. Was that good? Yeah. I thought we'd just roll straight into the show this time. I guess. It just makes <laughs> it seem so much less professional. I know. Well, hey, look at what you're dealing with. It's We're... been like two months since we made one of these, since we put one up. Incidentally, everybody, since this one will be going up at the same time as the other one, we did record episode 18, like, probably two weeks ago, and then I guess we just never uploaded it, so... I mean, that's what you get when you uh, come to us for entertainment, and we are going to try our very best moving forward to keep a consistent bi-weekly upload, uh, and we should be, you know, after this point, after this transition we've had in life and uh, distribution platforms. What do you want me to click on? I just wanted to scroll up so that I could take a picture of the flipping fantastic thing. Well, and I'll post it on social media. No. Okay. That, no. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we should be moving right back to that old faithful style of upload, I think, after this. Back when we were good. And because uh, that is important. It's true. Reading about how important it is to be consistent in, with your uploads. <laughs> and your balance. Do a massive, massive following like yeah, we have. We, what we need is... Um, no, to build to a massive following, because that's our dream, right? Yeah. Is to do this full-time and... Part-time, but, like, full-time money. Yeah, yeah. And to grow to hate each other as we get mm-hmm. more famous. All we need to do is get famous enough um, to the point where we can get good hosts, and then we can just stop. It'll Retire, be like... Retire, yeah. It'll be like it'll, the Good Ship Brothership with Tom York no, and Johnny Greenwood. No, it'll Greenwood. be like the Andrews Brothers Good Ship Brothership. And all of our stuff will be branded. Like, oh. Grant and Jason Andrews, the Good Ship Brothership. Could we have a Good Ship Brothership branded Flippin' Fantastic knockoff? No. no. It'll be hosted by, like, Oprah. <laughs> so, what did you do first? <laughs> oh, I was do just, we... I was gonna, I think we should do a little catch up with the stuff that we've been reading, watching, playing, because there's been quite a few. You know, we saw Blade like, Runner twenty forty nine. Maybe it was that last week or the week yeah, before something, or something like that. And uh, I thoroughly I'm enjoyed games. it. I know you thoroughly enjoyed it. I wasn't expecting to go into the conversation right now, but well, you said you wanted to do that first. Yeah, I know, but I was not done my recap. But no, please go ahead. Thanks. So we went and saw Blade Runner twenty forty nine a few days ago, um, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was. Like an appropriate follow-up to the original Blade Runner, I think by no means is it as good as the original Blade Runner. And coming out of the theater, I said to Grant, I'm left with the impression that I think it's better than it was. And I still think that's probably true. I think it what was... What do you mean by that? I you, think... You, it exceeded your expectations? No, I think I enjoyed it over what the average person would just because I enjoy Blade Runner so much. And being a big photography fan, I put extra weight on cinematography so I think it was probably a good movie that I viewed as great because of my priorities for a film like that. But, I mean, I also love Ryan Gosling. I thought it actually did a better job than the original of discussing like what it means to be a human. Excuse me. I didn't think it ran on too long, even though it was almost three hours. I was engaged the whole time, but I've heard other people complaining that they thought the runtime was too long. Maybe we'll do a review for it. Maybe we won't. I don't I know. I think you just did. Um, that's true. Overall, I thought it was very good. <laughs> yeah, and I still don't really know what I think of Blade Runner 2049. Ser- I was, like, quiet throughout your entire... <laughs> Comment down below to let us know which one of us you think is a better host. <laughs> I still don't really know what to um, 
what I think of Blade Runner 2049. I'm not a Ryan Gosling fan. I think I like the original Blade Runner more than you do. Um, yeah, probably. Most most likely. I'm I'm really not a Ryan Gosling fan for the most part. I liked him in Drive, and that was really it. Uh, the cinematography is beyond reproach. The I believed in the world and the characters pretty much absolutely. But in some ways, it didn't stray far enough from the original to me. It uh, definitely lagged a couple times, and it seemed like there were sections that should be cut out, and even some characters. I didn't like. I didn't really see the point in Jared Leto's character, to be honest. He was with just you. like Tyrell, but worse. He was. There was no buildup. Yeah. With Tyrell, there was this buildup. He's this god figure, whatever. I don't even know what we were supposed to think of Jared Leto's character. We we're supposed to be repulsed by him or something like that. But on the whole, I think I liked it. Uh, yeah, it's tough. I've never, I've never had these like feelings about a movie before. I've pretty much always had a complete opinion after my first viewing. Um, but for this, I'm just, I'm really not sure. I'm very conflicted. It, it's a very uh, respectful film that never. Never did it feel like it was taking advantage of the Blade Runner name. No. I don't know. So, yeah, there's that. What else? Quick recaps. Um, I'm actually starting to get into the book Matterhorn by Carl Marlantes, Marlantes, um, which is in some ways uh, the book equivalent of Apocalypse Now, although neither of them were based on each other. But it's just a similar dark, heady, um, lengthy war story um about vietnam is apocalypse now vietnam yeah yeah okay i couldn't remember if it was vietnam or korea and it tells the story of a platoon who are guarding this point in uh vietnam and i hope in like six months when i'm finished it it's like 700 pages i'd love to be able to discuss it more because i think it's actually gonna end up being a really special book so i'm glad i'm doing that um i've also had a real games kick again i had gone a while without playing too many games aside from like couch co-op stuff that we play all the time but i've been just chewing through the tomb raider games um the 2013 one and then uh, 2015 rise of the tomb raider and i think that by no means are they bastions of storytelling but i think the voice acting especially for laura who's voiced by camilla luddington is convincing enough that you do like care for her and it's interesting to hear her little anecdotes and stuff as you go on they actually have some pretty interesting storytelling devices although the game's not story driven where after significant events you sit down at like a campsite where you upgrade your stuff or whatever and she has like a little monologue as you're going around crafting new arrows or whatever and it's just a pretty cool thing so overall i'm enjoying that yeah i've just been there's been a lot of good stuff lately yeah and i've just recently gotten back into playing games as well uh, on Jonathan Gabber's insistence that I play also I should say my bandmate and good friend of the show Jonathan Gabber whom I love very much he's very tall uh, on his insistence I purchased Hyperlight Drifter and on my insistence he purchased Hotline Miami the uh, first one so I've been playing that and I'm very much enjoying it very it's very much the fantasy, maybe the fantasy equivalent of Hotline Miami in that the levels are very strategically structured. It's not quite as... Um, fast-paced. No, it's very fast-paced, but it's a little more chaotic. It's not as precision-driven, I don't think, as Hotline yeah. Miami is. And Hotline Miami is all about learning patterns and blasting through that. And this is a little more free-flowing. But I'm really enjoying it. It's very, very beautiful. The pixel art and everything is some of the best I've cool. seen in a long time. And very, very interesting settings and and like creatures and all that sort of thing. So I'm really enjoying that. We also purchased The Vanishing of Ethan Carter, which is... That's what they refer to as a walking simulator, yeah. right? Which is a slightly derogatory way of describing a game where you walk around a normally beautiful, 
picturesque environment and pick up little clues and that sort of thing, yeah. would you say? It's, it's a low-key kind of thing. And it's a murder mystery? Is that what it is? The central premise of the game, without either of us having played it, so we can't really review it, um, I was just saying that is that we got it in the, the character, you, wake up and at first blush it appears that there's been like a rapture like everybody's oh. missing except for you but you pick up clues and i think you see like uh these ghosts or apparitions or whatever temporarily as you're walking around and you just basically have to figure out what happened not a murder mystery no can i have a kleenex yes i've heard excuse me i've heard a lot of good about it and i've heard some bad about it so that's kind of just intrigued me more and i really look forward to playing it should be pretty cool we are just, I don't know what's going on if there's a fungal outbreak in our basement, but lately I've been blowing my nose like a racehorse goes through horseshoes. <laughs> yeah. Sounds so loud. Maybe we're just super low key today. I don't know. There's something I was gonna say. I wish we had some snacks. I know. We have been, I have absolutely nothing to say right now. Yeah. This is a great podcast. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. I've been giving some thought lately to possibly s- switching it up and getting a new uh, no theme. Welcome to the Good Ship Brothership. Uh, it's the only arts podcast that covers film, music, gaming, literature, and ponytail uh, deliverance. I'm Grant, and this is his brother Jason. What are we talking about today? Today we're talking about. <laughs> uh, but... Today, today we're talking about. You know what? So the... okay, hey, I'm sorry. Shut up. I'm no. sorry to get off. I'm... No. Can I please no. say this? No. We have a structure to maintain. No, we don't. We should. Today's episode is on Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds album, Push the Sky Away, and the Cormac McCarthy, I guess, uh, screenplay slash script. It's a story. Slash short story, The Sunset Limited. And we'll flip the puppet to determine which we talk about. While I do that, you can fill us all in on the... Well, no, we do one at a time. What? Oh, I see what you're saying. I was just going to say that in our circle, which is actually just the two of us, (laughs) it's more of a line, there are some things that we say on the podcast that do become enduring fads in our lives, and one of the best ones was Grant's voice crack from an earlier episode, um, where he goes, (laughs) so you know what I was thinking about the other day, Jason? And we still quote that one to this day. And I so did I'm acknowledge we had another voice crack. I yeah, no, I know I did. That. So <sighs> you flipped it, but we didn't decide which side was which. I know that's why I picked it up. Okay, again. You so didn't face down is going to be the sunset limited because that's what would happen to the dude if the other guy okay. had to say. Hey, him. hey, <laughs> sunset, sunset limited. limited. Wow, do you want to go first? Time or time or um, I don't care. Let me go. Well, I don't know. I feel I like I always go first. You go first. Me go first. Yeah, I feel like I always go first. Okay, well, I'm, I'll pull up the Wikipedia here to give the people a little bit of a backstory. Okay, so the Sunset Limited actually is a passenger train. I didn't even oh, know, I didn't that. know that. Either. The Sunset Limited is a play by American writer Cormac McCarthy. McCarthy's second published play. It was produced by the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago on May 18th, 2006. It traveled to New York City later that same year. The play was published in a paperback edition about the same time that it opened in New York. Some consider it to be more a novel than a true play, partly because of its subtitle, A Novel in Dramatic Form. The play involves uh, only two nameless characters, designated White, originally played by Austin Pendleton, and Black, originally played by Freeman Coffey. Their respective, their respective skin colors. Named after their white, respective white skin black, colors. White and black. Uh, off stage, just before the play begins, Black saves White from throwing himself in front of a train. The title, The Sunset Limited, is derived from the name of a passenger. I can't read today. I'm like, is derived from the name of a passenger train that travels from New Orleans or Nolens to Los Angeles. Wow. All of the action takes place in Black's sparse apartment, where the characters go at the behest of Black after their encounter on the platform. Black is an ex-convict and an evangelical Christian. White is an atheist and a professor. 
They debate the meaning of human suffering, the existence of God, and the propri- propriety yeah. of White's attempted suicide. So I am it's it's sixty pages long. I've got my PDF here that I read it on. Very short. Uh we should also say, I realize that we're very small, but we should say that that's from Wikipedia so that Wikipedia doesn't stamp us out. Now, that would be whack. Wikipedia is not, like, for profit. I don't think they could. But could you still quote them? Yeah. Also, I just said, let's go to Wikipedia oh, okay. over here. To... So, thanks for that. Anyway, um, so it's 60 pages, very short, but I found it incredibly hard to get to get into and through the Sunset Limited. And it wasn't because I found the... Uh, themes to be troubling or heavy or anything like that. I just found it to be generally tedious. Stick with me on this, because I know you love it. I did not love it. I am a massive... Cormac McCarthy, I think, is my favorite living author right now. Uh, he His books, especially Blood Meridian, The Road... And uh, that other one that's on my shelf back there that I can't see right now, so I can't remember it. No Country for Old Men? No Country for Old Men, that's it. The Road? Um, you already said The Road. Yep. Those are some of, I think, the best and most uh, bold novels ever created and say some of the most interesting things ever said in novelistic form. But this was, uh, this was not that. This was not Cormac McCarthy at his finest. This was him, I think, at his worst. The the dialogue between black and white is decently natural, I think, in terms of it feeling not contrived and it reading smoothly and easily. But it's really, it's, all, again, not his best by quite some stretch. I'd say a lot of his best dialogue is probably in No Country for Old Men. And there are good themes in The Sunset Limited, but... The the nature of how they get to these themes, white and black, is this repetitive, repetitive like formula that became very tiring to me immediately upon discovering it, which is pretty much um, black or white makes a statement. They say, you know, here's the problem with with suffering, blah, 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 blah. And they say it in this opaque, oblique kind of way that's not actually that opaque or difficult to understand and the other guy goes what do you mean by that and then they go what i mean is this when i was i'm not even good that's kind of what i mean is this when i was 12 years old i watched my mother kill a spider with a tea cozy you know and then they go into this whole like that was an oceans 12 reference i know and then they go into this whole anecdote about some time they saw something happen to somebody else and it made them feel bad so i just i don't know i I didn't get much out of it. I didn't get the chills. I wasn't captivated by it. Um, I really, really like the concept, and I really like the writer, but it didn't live up to either of those two things for me. I just found it to be incredibly frustrating. White keeps going, I should go. I should go. You know he's not going to go, you know? And after, like, That's the a suspension third... of disbelief, though. Like, you know the book's not over, so you know he's going to stay. But to an extent, you have to go, this seems like something someone would say, so I'll put my disbelief on hold. I, I disagree with that disbelief. Uh, at a certain point, too, you just have to understand what a reader will be thinking, and you have to understand how you need to keep the story real and alive and uh, potent for them. That said, it's not originally designed to be a book. Yeah, but what do they think? You know, they think that the character's going to walk off and kill himself, and then the, for the next, you know, 40 minutes, we're 20 minutes into the play here, they think that it's just going to be just the black guy sitting in his apartment Do I think Laura Croft can actually jump 20 feet and then axe into a rock face with her single rock It's just the repetition. It's him going, I should go, and you know he's not going to go. It it just loses its its, its, uh, threat. It's just as if I, I kept saying that to you now and you knew I wasn't going to go. You would get irritated, okay? You yeah, know? but I think to an extent it shows that he he's very uncomfortable with the conversation, but at the same time he's engaged enough that he's not actually willing to leave. Maybe so, but you can do that in various different ways and not just the same like, I should go, no, don't go, uh, are you hungry? I should go. No, uh, have a bit of the jamboree, and then he has a bit of the jamboree. And he feels they a little jamboree in that book. Uh, jamboree is like a party. 
Um, Can you eat so it? So, no. <laughs> anyway, I think it's like a musical kind of party, but I'm not really sure. Uh, I'll look it up. We'll review a jamboree next. <laughs> and also, I think uh, Black's dialogue, too, felt a little like stereotypical like spiritual black man. A large celebration or party, typically a lavish and boisterous one. Jamboree. There you go. Uh, I I didn't. Jamboree. Sorry. I didn't find the characters, either of the characters, to be very well fleshed out or um, human. I don't really know how two people would behave in that sort of setting, so I can't say definitively this is wrong. But they they were definitely archetypes, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when you're hanging your hat on it being a conversation between two people, I want to feel like these two people are, you know, true and real. Okay, I can rebut all three of those in not necessarily a way that's objectively sure, correct, sure. but what I would say... So in terms of them not being fleshed out, I would say that that's absolutely the case because it's like a 60-page, it's a two-hour conversation, and I think you know what they know, what two strangers having like a two-hour conversation would know. So the thing of them being not fleshed out, I feel like is not an issue. Like I don't need to know their life story for one conversation. And I I'm think not that... saying life story. I mean like rounding off the way some people would speak some people use slightly different verbiage and that's like you don't think they seem human dealt with no they don't they seem like archetypes and that's okay but when you're hanging your hat like i say on the fact that it's a conversation between two people in an apartment i just want the conversation to feel a little more human and i feel like they would i can't remember i know they address family like very passingly but mm. I, you know, real people want to know a bit more about each other before they engage in a discussion like this, because there has to be that foundation, you yeah. know, of like even if it's a scant one of yeah. trust. We are we've covered this before when art has been in various forms, and we always say that we're reviewing it only in the form that we consumed it in. So I can't make justifications about it as a play, which is what I'm about to do. But I think if you saw it as a play, then they would add a lot more ums and stutters and things like that that make the dialogue seem human that may not necessarily have been written into the stage play. And also, I think that whether this was intentional or not, you could also make the argument that their conversation doesn't seem very natural and fluid because it's a situation that they're both supremely uncomfortable in. And I'm not sure if that was his intent. But that's what I would read into stiff dialogue. I don't think either of them seem uncomfortable. I think White's super uncomfortable. That's why he wants to leave. (laughs) But he never does. That's because he's intrigued by the conversation. So he's not that uncomfortable if he's staying. If he was really uncomfortable, he'd just leave. This is... White's supposed to be a man who's got nothing left to, to, to care about. If that was really true, he wouldn't mind... Like, if he was very uncomfortable, he'd just get up and leave. He's got nothing keeping him there. Why is he staying there? If he's intrigued, there has to be a human element. Humans get intrigued. Archetypes don't get intrigued. So if he's getting intrigued, then he must be a human. But where's his human side? We don't really see it because he's kind of an archetype. I think he wants to believe he's wrong, but he also doesn't want to be wrong. Anyway, anyway, moving along a little bit. Um, I, I also found that I was quite disappointed in the ending. Um... The ending felt a little cheap to me, and I could I could agree like with it, that. It was That's it, fair. it was you know ironically or unironically the easy way out. You know, it was definitely what I was expecting, and you know it's Cormac McCarthy, so maybe that's part of why I expected it. But I was just eh, the ending was a complete non-event to me. Overall, uh, it's definitely the worst Cormac McCarthy writing worse I've ever than read. Beatrice oh no that was Jan Martel never mind yeah very different um can you seriously not do that like I know I'm not very picky that's, over my notes are there sounds that go through the podcast but that's quite irritating just out of control um <laughs> my goodness gonna have you just lighting off firecrackers continuously and tap dancing on a alligator um I have completely derailed. 
overall, it's definitely Cormac McCarthy's worst writing I've read, and I've read The Orchard Keeper, which is very disjointed. The power of McCarthy's writing, from what I've experienced, and I've read quite a lot of his books, is in his description of place and setting and weaving that into his characters so that you understand that the land and the characters are almost one and the same. It's this very powerful, uh, ancient, I say transcendent already, kind of way of writing that's very powerful and like huge. And he shrunk it down to this tiny little scale and I just feel like he lost a lot of his power and his um, detail when he did so. So yeah, interesting. I didn't. I didn't like hate it. It was not the worst thing I've ever read. Beatrice and Virgil's worse, but uh, yeah, I was completely underwhelmed by it, especially coming from Cormac McCarthy. Okay, well that's interesting, but you're wrong. Okay, this sure. is. I'm gonna put the brakes on now, as if we've ever been on the gas, and say that this is gonna be another interesting episode because I feel like my opinions of Nick Cave are gonna mirror your opinions. I know. I, well, I but knew I, that that was gonna maybe be not to the extent that you think. Um, so I think to start off, I think this story would have been a monumental success if for no reason other than his depiction of a Christian and an atheist in conversation. I grow really tired, and we talk about this all the time out of the show, of modern media vilifying and stupefying Christians and just slamming the church completely unfairly. But I also grow tired of Christians' depictions of atheists and agnostics in media. Um, The most tired example, in our household at least, is the movie God's Not Dead, (laughs) which is bar none probably the worst movie I've ever seen. And it depicts the atheist professor as We saw that in the theater, didn't we? No. Did we not? No, I don't think so. Good. I would have walked out of that. But it depicts the atheist professor as this hate-filled Christian slandering person who was hurt by the church in his past. And he has a soft center, but he also just targets the Christians and like... It's like, oh, he had daddy problems and now he's a tantrum-throwing little boy at age 37. It's so unfair and so immature and that's one of the things that makes me embarrassed, like, (laughs) to be a Christian. Yeah, just about... (laughs) And so, with all of that in mind, I think that the greatest strength of this is how fairly and evenly he portrays a Christian and an atheist in conversation. Um, I think both of the parties seem reasonably intelligent, if for different reasons, you know, street smart versus book smart, going back to what you said about archetypes. And I think they seem reasonable and arguably even benevolent. Like, I don't think either of them comes across as evil. And in some ways, I don't think either of them comes across as good because, I mean, Black is, like, a murderer. He did time in jail for murder. That's why he's a murderer. Yep. (laughs) I think to say too, too much about the story um, would spoil it just because I think experiencing it is the whole point. Like, I don't know what I mean by that. That was a stupid thing to say. Like the re- wheels are like, coming off. Like reading the book is like yeah, how, you, how exactly. you get the words yeah. in your head. <laughs> I was like, what, is, what does that even mean? <laughs> uh, in essence, though, I think it's the conversation about um, the good of God and the evil of man and the battle between um, blacks' optimism and whites' just kind of stark, depressed reality. Um, the whole book, it's not a spoiler to say, I think we already said is just a conversation between the two of them in an apartment. The setting doesn't change. The characters don't change. But because of this, I think the stage play format works super well because all it is is like black said, white said kind of thing. Well, it was written for the stage. Mm, Exactly. But I don't think we need too much like scene description because the scene never changes. So that's why I think the style didn't bother me as much as I thought it would. In fact, I think it was intentional on his part that he's like, they're in an apartment with basically nothing in it, because then he never has to describe the setting, like, ever again, really. Um, I think the characters are distinct. I don't think they're that detailed, and I think it's totally valid to say they're archetypes, because they totally are. But I think that it works as a conduit to discuss the topic at hand. I think it's more about the topic than the characters. And so I think in that way... It's not really that much of an issue. Also, I say I think too much. So for the remainder of the show, I'm going to try and say it not nearly as much. Yeah, you only think that. <laughs> I, I should say uh, I'm in the midst of writing something 
that's of a similar, uh, sim like if if you were to look at both the Sunset Limited and what I'm working on right now from the top down, you might say that there's you know not too much different going on. Yeah, you're gonna be making all sorts of sounds. Please stop. No, look at the levels. It's fine, Jason. It's I like made you a, a pen holder. I made him a pen holder. Um, I need to get you a fidget spinner. That's we need to get yours out. Oh no, still in the packaging. Um. So I am writing something that is, for the most part, primarily just two people sitting talking. And as I've been going along, and I'm like forty pages in right now, I think. I have not found it that difficult to keep things moving, keep things kind of interesting, and describe setting in place in a way that mirrors or foreshadows uh, where the conversation might be headed. I think that, you know, maybe my way of writing and is a little bit more cinematic than what Cormac's going for, especially because this is for the stage and a lot of it is in the hands of the actor. But... Cormac McCarthy is a master of cinematic writing. Like, you know that. Yeah. I know that. Every Anybody who's ever read The Road knows that. Um, I, so I don't think that the fact that it's two people sitting talking gives any credence to the, oh, you know, it's there's not a lot of description or cinematic quality. Yeah, I suppose so. Just I just don't think there really needs to be for this tale. I think it lives off of being pared back. It's short. It's not too detailed. It's a vignette. We talk about how much we hate that, but we use it all the time. We're, I am everything I hate. It is, yeah. And I think overall it really thrives off of the balance of their conversation. Black doesn't have all the answers, but white clearly to an extent is just angry at the world without complete justification as much as he tries to justify it. And I think the most telling, um, the most telling analogy i can come up with for its balance is when i first heard of it i heard of it um from aaron baby schwabi who is a good friend of ours who is an atheist and he absolutely loves the story and i think the fact that i can read it as a christian and love it i'm sure we both took different things away from it but i think that really tells how well balanced it is and i think that or i would like to think that it gave both of us a lot to think about and yeah, I think no matter who you are, if you go to it, it'll challenge your beliefs um, in a healthy way. And I also found it super interesting. I read it in short bursts over my breaks at work over like a couple days, and I never found it sluggish at all. I found the writing totally engaging, but that could be because I was only reading it for 20 minutes at a time, spread I didn't a few read times it for, a day. I think the most, the most of it that I took down in one sitting was probably the remaining 20 yeah. pages or... 15 pages or something like that. So I wasn't reading it in huge bursts either. I just, I also, like, natural dialogue is such a difficult thing to write. And I found that some of this was just verging on obnoxious with, you know, da-da-da-da-da, hmm. Oh, why are you saying hmm? And they they had that whole discussion about why they had said hmm. Oh, what are you thinking about now? Oh, I'm thinking about life and death. What are you thinking about? Oh, funny you should mention it. I'm thinking about life and death too. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Like, it It just became... <laughs> I didn't find that to be the case at it, all. For me, I just... It, it was, like, right up in my face, this, like, unneeded, unwanted, unwarranted, just repetitious, uh, kind of obnoxious quality that the dialogue took on from time to time. And it wasn't like... Like I keep saying, it's not the worst writing I've ever heard, but compared to Cormac McCarthy's usual output... <laughs> Huh. Yeah. Well, this is getting us nowhere. I like it. He doesn't okay. like it. I really didn't very much. If you like me, read it. If you like Grant, don't read it. Yeah. If you like us both, read it and then forget about it. Read it and then hate it, actually. Okay. So you're starting again. For Push the Sky yeah. Away. But I'm going to read the Wikipedia page because you did not do well last time. Yeah. Uh, go up. Yeah. Push the Skyway is the 15th studio album by the Australian alt-rock band Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, released on February 18th, 2013, on the, bad's, on the band's own label, <laughs> Bad Seed Limited. <laughs> I think it's their second newest album now, right? Since yeah, uh, yeah. whatever the new one was called. Yeah. 
recorded at La Fabrique in southern France. Oh, it is wow. the band's first album not to feature founding member Mick Harvey, who departed the band in January 2009, and the first album to feature founding member Barry Adamson since Your Funeral, My Trial in 1986. Um, yeah, I think that's all there is to say about it, really. All right, so uh, I haven't been a huge Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds fan. Not fan, consumer. I jumped in at Murder Ballads, which is probably his most notorious album a couple years back. So good. And I didn't find it to be, like, it didn't grab me. I thought, wow, this is, like, very strange. It's very... So unsettling. It's very unsettling and is different than anything I'd heard. And I liked the instrumentation for the most part and the performances and that sort of thing. Um, But it was only last year when I was going through the year's albums that I came upon... Uh, Skeleton Tree by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and was completely astonished by what I was hearing. Uh, Murder Ballads, that's uh, probably put out in the 90s. I'll look it up. Um, Murder Ballads, the sound is very uh, greasy, gritty, pub rock, garage rock. Um, A little bit of blues, maybe, uh, and a little bit of folk, even. So it's a very, it, it is a melting pot, but it's all stuff that makes sense, and it's all, they're all next-door neighbors, these genres that he's kind of borrowing from. And when I listen to Skeleton Tree, it's completely different, very floaty, very sparsely um, instrumented. Murder Ballad is from 96, just hey, for context. That was correct. Great um, album art for that, too, by the way. Very cool, yeah. It's a, very um, Fargo, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, so anyway... I came to push the sky away because people said that it was like the more positive cousin of Skeleton Tree. It's not saying much. Um, no, it's really not. Skeleton Tree is a tough album. But I came to push the sky away kind of excited and interested because people were comparing it to this new album that sounded completely different than his old work. And I was excited to hear more of that sort of thing. Now, today, before we recorded, in preparation for this, I actually listened to the album that Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds put out before Push the Sky Away called Dig Lazarus Dig, which is a very cool uh, uh, album title. And it's completely different. It's like garage rock, rock and roll, very raunchy, lots of distorted electric guitar riffs, lots of uh, classic rock and roll sound. This is rock and roll. Sounding drum beats, you know, four on the floor, and lots of loud, raunchy uh, attitude. I feel a sneeze brewing. While you're doing that, I do find it interesting to note how rare their album output seemed to have been all the time. I can't say for their whole output, but Dig Lazarus Dig, 2008, Push the Sky Away, five years later in 2013. Although, Push the Sky Away is the 15th studio album. By yeah, them. that's what I mean. They've been going steady for like 30 years. They've been but going they, since the 80s, yeah. But they release albums infrequently and seem to be on that path for some time, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, which is, I mean, yeah. if they're, you know, releasing stuff when they feel inspired also, it took to do so. seven months to record it. Yeah, that's not that's not hugely I unusual. Guess. just seems like Anyway, lot. listening to the album before this one, I was really struck by the differences. Very, very huge disparity. And then one of their members left, and then they recorded this album. Uh, there, there are a lot of mentions it, lyrically of rivers in this album. Water and rivers. Mermaids uh, and that sort of thing. You know, very heavily throughout the album. And I yeah. think that that's a great... Rivers specifically... Yeah, I just had another voice crack. River specifically, very emblematic of this album's sound. You got that like solid bed at the bottom of it, but everything's kind of shifting and flowing along, and uh, different things are being carried down and through and out of your field of vision in every song. And uh, I found the instrumentation was what really struck me upon my first couple listens. Very sparse. Uh, I think track four is the first song to have a drum kit. In it, I didn't notice that. That's and interesting. For the first three tracks, there's no drum kit whatsoever, and I did not. And you saying you didn't notice that did not miss it even slightly. And I can't think of another album where that's been the case. Even on Skeleton Tree, in the first uh, track, Jesus Alone, 
I got kind of tired of the like churning fuzz guitar yeah. with no rhythm sort of thing. But right off the top, and we know who you are, which is one of my top three uh, picks from this album. You've got this great um, rhythm underriding everything and uh, providing a foundation. And a lot of the songs do this, uh, the move where they just introduce an underlying motif that then just repeats over and over again throughout the song and it takes on new shapes and they add to it, they subtract from it and it becomes this kind of like living thing underneath the uh, songs and and I really like that. I think it's a really creative and uh, interesting way to challenge yourself. I've done the same thing on a couple of occasions myself where you just record a certain riff or a certain chord transition and you just loop it over and over again for five, six minutes. And then you go, okay, what can I do with this? And sometimes it yields some really interesting and surprising results. And I think that on this album, this we're tripping over them pretty much. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm just going down through my notes and realizing that I've just said most of them. Uh, lyrically, this album is quite abstract, but it doesn't get onto that, like, plane of bad Radiohead, where it's like, okay, you've clearly just mixed up, and David Bowie did this somewhat famously, he took a bunch of lyrics that he wrote to a song that he didn't like, and he cut out every word, and then just mixed them up, and laid them back out, and that was the new lyrics, and he rolled with that, and I can't remember what album it was on, but it was stupid. Anyway, um, Nick Cave is such a master, I don't know if I've said this before, of the profound and the profane. And he really mixes them together. There's some very explicit, like, sexual uh, things that he says. Or just, th- he says something, and you're like, what? Did he just, did you really just say that? And you Google it, and sure enough, he did just say that. He did just say that word, or phrase, or whatever. But then, it's all underlined with this beautiful, kind of, like, heartbreaking sentiment that that I absolutely adore. And these paintings, these pictures he's painting, are just abstract enough that... You can, you can get emotion from the shape of them, or you can go in and get emotion from the brush strokes, from the stories he's telling. And I think that this was the first, because he's famous for being a storyteller. On yeah. murder ballads, every song is a linear story. Very few songs have choruses, etc., etc. And this album, Push the Sky Away, was, I think, his first step away from that. And then on uh, Skeleton Tree, he kind of like announced that he was going to depart from that method, that school of writing songs, and said that he thought that he had kind of done all that he could do there and that he was kind of bored by storytelling as a songwriting device. So, I don't know. Take from that what you will. I think that what that means for this album is that it's an interesting, kind of welded together um, outfit of somebody who's trying to learn a new skill set and they're still using elements from the old one, but it's an exciting kind of melding of the two. And I thought that that was very evident and uh, and well used the the one con I would say I don't really like the the ending track um, which is also which the is title the, track the title track Push the Sky Away it feels a little flat and a little weak and so many bands can't get the the final track thing right you know it's I don't know why I don't maybe I'm wrong maybe to them it's the perfect ending track but I just find it it's a little plodding it drags on a little too long and it floats a little bit too much my closing thoughts would be you know I find I find the sounds of this album the tones the textures and the rhythms to be immensely refreshing for me finding this album which I found it in the summer was a real cold drink of water and a real break from a lot of my assumptions about what songs can be and uh, what a song must constitute of in that, you know, he's taken out a lot of the drums uh, and just left great holes in the floor and not tried to fill them with, you know, copious amounts of delayed guitar or sound effects or anything like that. Um, The texture, the imagery is beautiful. My top three tracks would be We Know Who You Are, uh, Wide Lovely Eyes, and then the last one's a split between Mermaids and Higgs Boson Blues. Higgs Boson Blues is very much in that uh, corner of traditional Nick Cave yeah. songs, but it's still very excellent, I think, and has mm-hmm. an amazing build. A lot of these songs in this album have a fantastic oh, yeah. build, you know. Uh, 
But yeah, <coughs> those are my thoughts. I loved it. Absolutely love it. It's one of my... It's one of the pillars in my musical year, personally, for me. Huh. Interesting. The albums that I've discovered. And I know you don't like it, so let's go right into this. Now, I hear, as a presenter, that a good thing to do when you're starting a piece or whatever is to loosen up the crowd with a couple jokes. So I've prepared a couple jokes here uh, that you can help me with. So what does, what, do, what does push the skyway and trigonometry have in common? Neither of them make any sense. <laughs> okay, that's one. Here's the other one. Wow, that's great. Did you have you? Okay. What did push the sky away and my trigonometry lessons have in common? You fail at both? I forgot about both minutes after I heard them. <laughs> okay. Wow. That's maybe a little bit unfair. Consider but, the crowd warmed up. So here's the thing. And maybe you've done enough research that you've basically cheated and you can answer this. But the question I would pose to you and one of my central issues is this. What is the album about? Does an album have to be about one thing? Well, it is. What do you... So about the album, Nick Cave said... Uh, let me see. About the album, Cave said, quote, These songs convey how on the internet profoundly significant events momentary fads and mystically tinged absurdities sit side by side and question how we might recognize and assign weight to what's genuinely important, unquote. That's a fantastic idea. That's all well and good. I could have listened to the album a thousand times and I never would have heard that. Well, here's the thing. He could be wrong. As somebody... <laughs> but they're his songs. What does he know? He made them. We listen to them. The listener, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Significance is in the ear of the listener. Um, <laughs> you can take that one to the yeah. bank and sleep on it. But no, uh, seriously though, um, I don't think that you have to agree at all with an artist about what their art is about. And I think that the power of... I the, do agree with that, actually. I think the power of how um, loose he wrote these songs and how abstract they are, I think the power of that is that you can take many different meanings from them. I guess. My central problem was that I took nothing away from any of them. Okay. And... Now, I have been a little unfair. I'm going to loosen up. There are lots of good things to the album. It's not a bad album. Mm -hmm. I certainly have nothing against his music, and some of his stuff has really struck me. as interesting murder ballads I loved, and uh, Skeleton Tree I thought was quite good. Maybe a little too dark <laughs> for my tastes most of the time. Um, but I found that this album overall was quite forgettable and just basically a worse version of the worst elements of Skeleton Tree and Murder Ballads. I feel like each of them hewed their own path a little bit more and were each better for it, whereas this is, in some ways, a split between them and kind it's a, of... It is a fork in the road. Yeah, exactly. Um, don't get me wrong, this is probably the case of it's not you, it's me with the album, but the fact of the matter is I just retain so little of it, even though I listen to it more and more especially these last few weeks i'm like i'm so unfamiliar with the album even though i've listened to it since august kind of thing i need to really step up my game and i listen to it more but right now i could probably only hum you the tune to like two or three of the choruses and maybe that's because it's a lyrics based band but at that point the question should be has have the lyrics given me anything to think about or have i learned anything from them and the answer has to be no for that don't you think that there's something to be said about an album or songs that are written as mood pieces or tone poems and while you're listening to them you're in them you're just experiencing a different place or different emotions for that time and then it passes on i think that's true and valid but i also think a band like uh the national say or even vampire weekend is the opposite they're very bright and cheery but i think those are bands that can put you in a place and can serve as a mood piece but also have the meat and the material musically and lyrically for when you want to really explore them and deep dive them. But do you think that the, both of those, that duality has to be present? No, but I think it can be nothing but a good thing. Clearly, it doesn't have to be present. Right. Um, I wrote down here, uh, I realized like, the hummability of a chorus, the catchiness of a tune, is not and should not be the sole metric we rate music by but the fact of the matter is, if I can hardly remember what I'm reviewing, we have a problem. 
I see. I find that I'm kind of surprised by that because I thought there were loads of catchy little the moments. B- the biggest uh, lyric like line I can remember is this, and we've discussed this before. And it's unfair to pick on an album just for one lyric that's weird, but there it is. In uh, one of his songs, he sings, "I do driver alertness course. I do husband alertness course. I do mermaid alertness course." That's and then mermaid. he just sings about mermaids. All the ones who go. And I don't know. I I just find that such an obtuse. Like it doesn't flow even from a speaking standpoint. No, it doesn't. Like, and I know I'm picking on the weakest link here, but that's what you got to do sometimes. <laughs> that's what I'm doing, anyways. The fact Very of the matter fair. is. You listen to someone like Leonard Cohen, and sometimes he lacks a tune or a real meter. Sometimes he doesn't, but sometimes he does. But I think his lyrics still have a good uh, pacing and rhythm, even when he's not singing them in a musical fashion. I would say two things to that. I don't think Leonard Cohen's lyrics have always been genius by any standard. No. They're always they're always fitting, and they're always um, very workmanlike in their presentation, and especially on his two last albums. He was. He seemed to be much more about flow and meter in a kind of Bob Dylan way than he was before. I mean, Leonard Cohen is a far superior writer too. Yeah, if you compare anyone to Leonard Cohen, they'll lose. But also, Leonard Cohen's um, purpose, his aim, and his vehicle are completely different than Nick Cave and Bad Seeds. Granted, but I'm just comparing for uh, comparison's sake. Yeah. Um. So I guess those are my thoughts on the mood the quote-unquote artistic side of the album um in terms of production and instrumentation i would say overall it's quite good i did find the droniness got a little bit irritating not to the extent where it really bothered me severely do you have notes as to which tracks it bothered you on because there's one that i think stretches um maybe not for drone but for water's edge i found it got quite muddy and quite over layered especially like in the middle should we listen to a bit of it yeah, I think Are we so. Get a copyright strike. If you well, not if we talk over it. This is the one that I would say yeah. because for the whole song, I'll turn it up so people can hear it. It's just this, and this to me paints a beautiful picture of a river. Yeah. They take apart their bodies like toys for the little boys. And it it is very like not nailed down. It just drifts around. But then, so we're at. We were at 26 seconds there. Now we're going to jump to All right, two, three minutes. two minutes, 50 seconds. <laughs> and it is just Nothing the same changes. thing. Nothing changes. No, thank goodness that's not like a five-minute no. song. It's like almost four minutes. But, uh, but that did bother me, and I feel like there would be more detail and more clarity if they had taken a few layers out. Now perhaps they were going for a cloudy sound. But personally, that's not what I'm looking for. Again, we go back to the theme of it's not you, it's me. And I think this album is really made for people who are not me. <laughs> but also, I mean, like, let's just listen to this. Oh, this is a fantastic song. Oh my goodness. But like, you listen, haven't let me get to my positives yet. Like, this is the album at its best for me. I yeah. Think. Oh, absolutely. So beautiful. So, like, delicate and understated. I'm going to get to good things, too, because I don't hate the album. I really... I have a couple questions for you. Anyway. Okay. Uh, a quick word on the album art. I think it's a stunning oh, image. I think goodness. it's fantastic album art. It's so um, beautiful. And it didn't strike me as leery or anything of the sort. I think it's just a beautiful picture. <laughs> and I love... <laughs> There's some comments on the, like, YouTube... Uh, of the whole album kind of thing. Yeah. Like, oh, typical rock and roll. It's a 50-year-old, 40-year-old guy leering at some attractive young woman. And then his wife. the comment <laughs> immediately underneath it was, that's actually his wife. <laughs> and she's, like, in her mid-40s yeah. or something. Yeah. it did Nothing about it struck me as leery, and I think the minimalist design of the packaging is fantastic. Because that yeah. does contribute to the experience, too, Absolutely, actually. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think that's very well done. The one thing I would note is... I have no idea what the album art had to do with the album, and I don't even really know if the mood matches the album's mood that well. Really? Really. I think it's a, per- especially for that opening song, um, I think it's a great But one. really, I have to give it overall good marks there, because I think it's a phenomenal image, and I really like the album packaging. Um, in terms of songs not going after his writing anymore, blah, 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 just what did I think of it? I find it hot and cold. My standout tracks, I all thought were phenomenal. 
but I feel like he could have done with a little bit more diversification. Maybe that's not what he wanted to say on the album, but I feel like all of the tracks that really stood out to me are cut from the same cloth, which might not be too much of a bad thing, and it might be that I'm looking for a specific thing from Nick Cave. But overall, I found that there are, if I listen to the album after this, which I don't even know if I will that much, there are like probably five songs I would listen to from it, like, consistently. And I mean for, what is it, eight? Nine? nine. For a nine-track album, that's not yeah, terrible. that's not bad. That's more than half. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think you can compare Nick Cave to a lot of fantastic artists, and I'm wrapping up here because I know we're going on. He's a bit like a depressed Leonard Cohen or like an angry national or whatever parallels you can draw. But what I do respect about him is that he takes these elements of other artists and who did it first is not what I'm talking about. And he makes a sound that is completely his own. Like he's one of the most individualistic artists I can think of and not in like a ethereal studio. Yeah, he's so out there. Yeah, exactly. Like Like I feel like he actually wanted to say his sound not just to be different, but it ended up being a really unique voice and i'm talking about his literal voice and his musical sound and i really respect that and i love it and i wish we had more individuality like that yeah um i don't think i gave him the credit he probably deserves in this review but i also didn't want to because the fact of the matter is i just didn't enjoy the album that much and honest sorry it had its moments and then probably at least 80% 80% of the time I was listening to it, I was doing it as work because I'd rather be listening to something else. And that could be a huge part of how you um, approached and what you took away from the album. A lot of times, as Kermode says, Mark Kermode says, um, you bring, you, or you take from a film or an album or a book what you bring to it. Mm-hmm. And if you're just going to it going, oh, I guess I have to listen to this, then you might not enjoy it. When I first listened to my favorite album of all time now, Marky Moon, I didn't like it. Because I, you know, wasn't dis- it didn't feel like a discovery. Yeah. But yeah, overall, it's not you, it's me. But I did not love it at all. My standout tracks are We Know Who You Are, mm-hmm. which is very good. Jubilee Street, which is an absolute banger. Actually, really? it's not, but I love it. Oh yeah, that's such <laughs> a good song. And Higgs Bows and Blues. Yeah, I purposefully left Higgs Boson Blues queued up for you in the truck yeah. yesterday because I knew that... Oh, did you? Yeah, I came home from work. I knew Jason was about to be going out, so I queued up. I had the CD in the truck. Incidentally, I think it's still out there. No, um, I brought it in and okay. put it away. Oh, <clears throat> very nice. Um, but I left Higgs Boson Blues. What a fantastic build that song has. Well, oh, like yeah, that's a great song. The choral voices come in, and there's that drum roll, and it's just the same riff, like over and over and over again for like six minutes and change but it's such a powerful beautiful song mm-hmm. yeah so well, i'm glad you like parts of it uh, yeah, that was i don't be think it's a bad album my, at all my but... one question for you is going to be what do you think of higgs boson blues it's probably actually third out of my top three tracks yeah. but i did like it a lot so you really liked jubilee street yeah oh, what yeah. do you think of that as paired with finishing jubilee street which is a couple tracks later? i don't know i'm torn between feeling like that was just an tacked on track but also thinking that like it's a pretty interesting, he has like this little quasi narrative at the beginning of it where he says like, I just finished writing Jubilee Street and then it's like his thoughts it's afterwards. A really, that's a weird It's pretty song. cool. But it is um, cool. Yeah. But I like Jubilee Street as a standalone song too. And do you think that this album is, you think it's worse than Skeleton Tree? It's definitely, yeah. oh man, it's think, definitely less potent. <laughs> I think it has the double downside of being less focused but it also doesn't diversify its sound enough for being less focused. I, I think if you're you... going to sound as similar as Push the Sky Away does, you should have a bit more of a coherent theme like he does in Skeleton Tree. Well, you could look at that as a good thing, I suppose, because Skeleton Tree is an iteration on Push the Sky Away. And yeah, the other and he right. definitely improved it. That's true. So, And I think that, I think, what do you think is the best song on Push the Sky we Away? We know who you are, probably. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. And I That's think a that, fantastic song. I think that Rings of Saturn is the best off Skeleton Tree, and I think they sound a little alike. Interesting. Wouldn't you? Just in that kind of like ethereal tonality. Okay. I don't know. So you don't, you didn't hate that as much as I thought you were going to. No. I thought you were going to be like, wow. It's actually sort of um, the opposite of Blade Runner 2049 to really do a callback to the beginning of the episode. It feels like years ago. Um, With Blade Runner 2049, I came out of it with the impression that I enjoyed it beyond what its quality 
would suggest. Yeah. And with this, I feel like I definitely enjoyed it less than its quality would suggest. To me, I would give it like a 6 out of 10 when I feel like it's probably an 8 out of 10 album. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, I was kind of lukewarm. Well, I mean, I'd encourage you at some point later on to just keep it in mind. Don't ever force yourself to listen to something, but... Oh, man. uh, Speaking of not forcing yourself to listen to something, though. What? I'm so excited for our next podcast. I was thinking about that today. Oh, yeah. I guess we could announce that. Yeah. The next podcast will be two things we're incredibly late on. A (laughs) A double musical album. So, Lord, I was supposed to buy months ago... Then there was a combination of crappy internet, me being lazy, and a bunch of other stuff coming out. So Lord's sophomore album, Melodrama, I said that really weird, will be, <laughs> will be one of the things we're talking about. And then another one, which has really uh, taken me by surprise anyways, is American Team by Khaled. Where did that, when um, did that come out? Where did uh, it come out? <laughs> February or May, like early this year. And it's his, I believe it's his first album. This is an artist I am totally unfamiliar with before March. this. March. March. March Khaled, I'm totally unfamiliar with. Um because it's, it's his debut album. But I've been listening to a ton of this album and absolutely digging it. And I think that him and Lord are an interesting pairing. They even toured together. So, I mean, there is that. So, yeah, I'm beyond excited for the next one. Um, I'm excited for it, too. We'll laugh. We'll cry. Probably not. We'll sing a sad love Guy's song. Guy's 19. Yeah, That's I know. It's unreal. And him, and how or how old is Lord? Like 20? Uh, I think she's like a year younger than me. Maybe. There you go. She's, she's 20. 20, yeah. So two of the youngest artists who are like good, or are they? And yeah. So I'm like so more excited for this upcoming episode than I have for like the last several episodes. Yeah. Well, that's nice. We broke through an hour, so... Yeah, I mean, we're always around an yeah. hour. Well, it's because I, uh, we get increased revenue. Yeah. I went to check out a new um, podcast from a YouTube channel, a film channel that I love, called Channel Criswell. I think it's C-R-I-S-W-E-L-L. And him and a uh, another... She must be a film-based YouTuber. I've just started this podcast. And they released their first episode. And I won't really... They acknowledged it was going to be a free-form kind of discussion, but it was very free-form. <laughs> um, like that. And, uh, and I looked at the timestamp, too, because I was listening to it while I was shaving, and I didn't know how much I should prioritize it. And it was like an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, so I just, you know... Yeah. That's just too... It's too much. Ideally, an hour is an ideal amount of Here's time. where we have an honest discussion with our listeners. <laughs> Ideally, I would like to get the podcast down to... Like 45 minutes. Yeah, that would be beautiful. Yeah. But I also don't want to force it. So I feel like as we go forward and as we get better, I would like the show to get a bit shorter. But I also never want to like be like, okay, chop, chop. Oh, absolutely. I think I like having our intros and like what we've been doing. I like the format, but I just need to become more concise as a reviewer because I also find I repeat myself a lot. So hopefully as we get better, it'll get a bit shorter. We should... Listen to podcasts ourselves and make notes on our own review. The one night you fell asleep listening to the Good Ship Brothership, and it took me like twenty minutes to realize it was us. Yeah, and I was like, in some ways, that was a good thing because I just assumed it was another podcast no, yeah, that was more yeah, successful than us. Because I was listening to uh, an episode and I found it weirdly listenable, despite the fact that it was me and you just talking, yeah. which is what I listen to like every day anyway. It's true. But one thing I know I need to do, and then we'll. Leave. Okay. Uh, it's good to have a little, little bit of an update. And yeah. this is a little inside baseball too. Um, is I I need to refine my notes more. What I think I need to start doing, and I realized this today as I was making my notes, is I want to have more of a structure for my notes. So for albums, all I have is my top three tracks at the very top of my page. And then I just have my flow of thoughts in point yeah. form going downward. Interesting, because I do a full <laughs> written, like basically a written article, and then I just riff off of it. So no, I no, read, I read half a script, but then I also just say things as I go along. So what I think I need to start doing is writing exactly like this, but in an order. But then after I do this, take it and put it in like a this is a draft. Yeah, type it out. You know, get it nice and punchy. Uh, so that I can just go right down through it. Because now I'm like hopping around trying to make everything make sense. Some things are paired together, like my uh, Sunset Limited. You can see this right here. I drew a line between yeah. the two of them because I want to talk about the two yeah. of them together. 
I want to talk about the covers of albums and the CD packaging like you did today yeah. whenever we talk about All right. anyway yeah there you have it so we're still trying to get better at this we're going to try and get a lot more consistent like a lot more consistent with our uploads because we've been terrible lately and I know that we can do it yes but so, this next one I'm so excited for and honestly <laughs> I've already listened to Melodrama <coughs> and American Teen probably as much as I listened to Nick Cave over the past two months so there is that yeah. Oh well. we'll all right. We'll see, see you all then. Yep. <sighs> Goodbye. Look at that! The perfect pancake stack. But making perfect pancakes is impossible. They stick together. That guy sounds like a woman. Them, and flop. that this Stop. right here. It's like Hi, when you're. Here, it's like when you're watching people like fall over or something in an infomercial, <laughs> and it looks like they're working it's so they're working yeah. so hard to fall over. Fantastic. The fast, easy. We should have reviewed this. Also, that guy looks like like an even more perverted white Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> Look at him! What ethnicity was Pee Wee Pee Wee Herman? Well, he he is was he not white. He is like white Caucasian. He, he must be Jewish or he doesn't look like he th- like that guy looks Irish white. Yeah. You know, yeah. Pee Wee Herman, super white. Pee Wee Herman Kay. doesn't look. Change of plans. Next episode, we're reviewing a flippin' fantastic commercial and Pee Wee Herman is a fictional character created and portrayed by American comedian Paul Rubens. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> Oops. Paul Rubens, child molester. Rest in peace, Paul. Oh, he's still alive. Think, dude, of course he's still alive. Well, he's 65. Old. He should talk he's to 65. He, he should, well, he's 65. <laughs> he should probably be dead by now. <laughs> this is going to be our ending bit. <laughs> Screw it. I'm not going to like... No. Yeah. No, oh. I mean, like, don't chop it. I mean, yes, this will be our oh. end. Oh. Yeah. Well, you just said No. He's got a bit of an no. uglier Kevin Kevin Sp- <laughs> Kevin Spacey thing going on. <laughs> uh-huh. So I guess I mean he is pretty white looking. He looks he looked more ethnic when he was younger. I don't know why he lost that. Rubens was arrested. I'm going to youth for indecent exposure really? in an adult theater, so a porn theater in Sarasota, Florida. Yikes! So is he not a child? He whipped out his he whipped out his peewee in an adult theater. So that's that's weird. I thought he yeah changed the public's view of Rubens and peewee. Oh, (laughs) the arrest postponed Rubens' involvement in major projects until '99 when he appeared in several big budget movies, including Mystery Man and blow <laughs> oh i forgot he was in the <coughs> oh i didn't that's something that we could review for like our, giving oh. inter- and started giving interviews as himself rather than as peewee thank you